If we are going to try to do breakthrough technology, and I think we really have to, then we're going to have to take the Silicon Valley attitude towards failure. Welcome to the Smart Energy International podcast, your guide to innovation and trends in the global power and energy sectors. As we were preparing for this podcast, I was reminded of a quote by Carl Sagan. One glance at a book and you hear the voice of another person, perhaps someone dead for a thousand years. To read is to voyage through time. I'm Claire Falkvane, the editor of Smart Energy International. This quote spoke to me for two reasons. Firstly, because for me, books are an opportunity to learn something from somebody else. But in this case, it's so perfectly appropriate for the book and the author that we're going to be talking to. Simply Electrifying is a book which covers the history of electricity from the perspective of the individuals that have influenced its development and the amazing minds behind the technology we take for granted today. It's written by Dr. Craig Roach, who has the distinction of not only being a published author, but he's also the founder of Boston Pacific, a consultancy specializing in the power sector. Today, we're going to be talking to Craig Roach not only about the book, which was published in 2017, but also about how he believes the story will continue to play out. Dr. Roach, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me, Claire. I, um, I wanted to ask, um, and I'm sure that this is a question that you've had many times before, but what was the inspiration for this book? Well, what I, what I wanted to do and what I found missing was I wanted to have uh, one book that I could hand to anyone and say, look, if, if you want to understand how we got to where we are in the electricity business today and to have some ideas on where we might go next, read this book. And Simply Electrifying is, is my attempt to, to provide that book to the industry, whether you're uh, a beginner or an expert. Uh, I wanted to have it all written in this one book. And there's a lot written about electricity. A lot of it is very good, but I found two things missing. Uh, one was that most authors begin the story uh, with Thomas Edison in the late 1800s, early, early 1900s, and, and the so-called battle of the currents between Edison and George Westinghouse, with, and Westinghouse having Nikola Tesla by his side. And that's a, a hugely important event, but it could not have happened had we not had prior to that about 150 years of great science. Uh, and so simply electrifying begins in 1752 with Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and Benjamin Franklin is, of course, one of America's favorite founding fathers, but he was also our first international scientist. And what he did with his famous kite experiment was to show that, that this fearsome force called lightning could best be understood as an electrical phenomenon. And with that, he triggered around the world a great interest in electricity. And, and for the most part, the study of electricity became the core of, of science. And then uh, another key player in, in this 150 years of science pops up in 1820, 1830. It's Michael Faraday. He is exploring the relationship between electricity and magnetism. And with that, he is able to invent the very first 
uh, electric motor and the electric generator. Very rudimentary, but at that point, we now have the beginnings of the power industry. Then a, a third scientist is, is the prodigy, the genius, James Clerk Maxwell, who takes Faraday's work and extends it to the relationship between uh, electricity, magnetism, and light. And he develops a theory of electromagnetic fields. And, and that is the science behind not only electricity, but all of our cell phones, our telecommunications. And, and finally, Einstein, uh, when he wrote, he, he implied to, that the study of electricity wasn't just one stop along the way to modern physics, but it was the, the path itself. In other words, the study of electricity led to most of the major breakthroughs in physics. And, and I, I hammer on this point because it's so important. If, if we want to understand the past, we have to understand the role of science. But equally important, I think to meet the challenges of today, we'll have to return to science and technology to, to address that too. So that, that was the first shortcoming of, of, of starting too late. Uh, you know, we needed to go back in history. The other shortcoming was that um, science and technology is not enough to explain the evolution of the electricity business. We have to take a wide-angled lens uh, we want to look at not only science and technology, but law and politics uh, and economics and business strategy. And then this catch-all term uh, called culture, which is shorthand for what society allows us to do at any particular point in time. So that's what I was trying to do with Simply Electrifying, get this single volume that would uh, give the right picture across time uh, and across factors that drive the business. Well, it's certainly no small task that you set yourself. My question would be then who your favorite character was and why? I have a lot of favorites uh, in this book. I'll pick one, but I, I want to pick on up on something that in your introduction you, you emphasized, and that is that I really believe that biography is an essential part of history. There, there are some historians who say that you, you simply shouldn't tell a story uh, with these sort of the great person image. But I really believe that history doesn't just happen, it's made and people, individuals have to step up and, and make it happen. So the book has a lot of biography in it. If I had to pick one person, I, I, I would pick Michael Faraday and I've already mentioned him. I think that he of course made um, amazing discoveries to start the power business, uh, again, the electric generator and electric motor in their rudimentary forms. But he has a great personal story. He, he is very poor. He loses his father early on in his life. And so he doesn't have much schooling. But through the kindness of others, mostly booksellers that he worked for, he was able to get tickets to um, these science lectures. And that's how he learned. And that's how he got excited uh, about science. Uh, at one point, through these friends who were trying to help him, he was able to get what was kind of a combination of lab technician and valet for one famous scientist of the day, Humphrey Davy. And hum Humphrey Davy was uh, traveling through Europe. He took Faraday along with him, and Faraday got an education by meeting the famous scientist. I call it he attended the University of Europe. But maybe one of the most interesting twists on the story is that we, today sometimes we, 
hear about a conflict between uh, science and, and religion, science and faith. And it's interesting that Michael Faraday was definitely a serious uh, scientist, uh, but he was also deeply religious. And the story is that, uh, again, his focus on this relationship between electricity and magnetism, he claims that it was motivated by his belief in, in religion. He said, if there was one God, then there should be one force. And he tried to connect the four forces of his day, again, electricity, magnetism, light, and gravity. So I find him to be uh, certainly famous because what he did, but I find him to be a very interesting character too. Perhaps this next question is going to be a little bit uh, of a difficult one to, to answer, but the book was published a couple of years ago. And having a look at the industry today, who have you been auditioning, perhaps, or who do you think is auditioning to possibly be in the next edition of Simply Electrifying? Given what I've just talked about for a few minutes, I would double down on, on science and technology. And so some of what I would add would, would cover a deeper discussion on some of the more uh, hopeful science and technology. I really think to meet the challenges of today, especially global climate change, but also protecting against cyber attacks and other goals, that we're going to need breakthrough technology. So if I was adding to it today, I would add a discussion of so some of these technologies. And just to give you an example, there's a field called nanotechnology which covers far, far more than energy. It can cut across agriculture, medicine. It's really about the scientists working at an atomic level. Um, I would look for those kinds of technologies that aren't necessarily energy-centered, but might have implications for energy. Nanotechnology could improve uh, efficiency of solar cells. It could make lighter weight material for wind. It could improve energy efficiency through development of materials. So I, I would focus there and on, on the people who are, are pushing those particular technologies. And there are a lot, of, a, a lot of good work going on. In terms of people, I would probably do more on Bill Gates. Uh, and the reason is, uh, not only is he making interesting contributions, uh, but he is more and more in my mind He's the kind of entrepreneurial philanthropist that only brings money, which is important, but he brings his own skills, especially entrepreneurial skills, which are skills about making things happen. So I would do more on him and look for more like him. Uh, you know, it, it's not only energy where he helps, but if you can see that entrepreneurial philanthropy going on today with the pandemic. He has a very high profile. He has made significant contributions in that debate, too. Of course, you know, I did a lot on Elon Musk. Uh, I think with his recent successes, I might do a little more to emphasize what he's done. He's, in terms of electric vehicles, I think he's uh, set the standard for how to go about running that business. Uh, I think he's, he's done a lot. So, but I would look for more of that sort of uh, sort of brave-hearted entrepreneur uh, like Masu. Obviously, being South African, Elon Musk is naturally one of those characters that we tend to follow quite closely, just purely because he's he he represents all the the great things that that are possible from anywhere. You know, it doesn't matter what country you come from; you are capable of greatness, regardless. 
you covered an enormous amount of history. I mean, you looked at things like the Hoover Dam. You looked at uh, FDR's New Deal. I mean, that particularly at the moment is really topical. How would you say we could learn from uh, particularly, say, uh, the, the work that FDR did uh, in developing the New Deal? Yeah, I think we can learn some, some good and some bad from the New Deal. I think that Hoover Dam is an example of a project that took some real skill to develop. I think that, it, you know, the Hoover Dam, just to take that as, as an example, it, it, it was a shovel-ready policy, the term we use here, shovel-ready, uh, because three presidents had worked on it prior to FDR. Uh, but by the mid-1930s, just when we needed jobs and we needed to focus the attention of the country on something positive, like providing uh, water and electricity in, in the Southwest, uh, it was ready to go. It was also a project that had a, a discipline, a public-private partnership that really had a discipline to it. So that in the end, this amazing project, and it, it really was something that at a scale, done at a scale that no one had ever uh, achieved before, that at that scale, that project was still on time and essentially on budget. And I think that we can learn from that project how bringing public demands, private skills together, uh, we can really do uh, significant things. And so I, I, I like to pull that out as a positive example. I think that some of the things during the Depression that I might want to look at more and, and, and watch uh, some concerns. You know, I think President Roosevelt, of course, was essential in getting people to believe there was hope uh, and getting people to believe that we would come out of the Depression. But there were things, too, I think, that he, he pushed that maybe we'd want to take a look at. One of them is the Tennessee Valley Authority, which, which was one of the first major actions uh, Roosevelt took after he was inaugurated. Uh, and he went into what was a poverty-stricken area of America, but with, with some significant potential for hydroelectric power. And he created a whole new kind of entity. He, he was asked, he said, is it fish or fowl? He said, well, it's neither. It combines the power of the federal government with the flexibility of business. So I would think that there was a distinctly different way on a public-private partnership. And TVA has, over time, uh, done some impressive things, certainly during the Second World War, as a major source of power for uh, the implements of war, aluminum manufacturing, uh, certainly the Manhattan Project. So it did a lot of things. But I think that TVA went further into not a public-private partnership, but almost into state capitalism. Uh, and I think it might have gone too far then. I think as we design our public-private partnerships today, I would rather have it done uh, something like the Hoover Dam than TVA. TVA turned out to be just another very large public utility uh, it, as, as a form of, of capitalism. It, it really didn't take hold. Uh, so I think we can learn on, on how to go about public-private partnerships from those two things. A few other things. FDR went after certain individuals. Samuel Insull is the most famous case. I don't know that that hostility towards business, uh, even though there, there, there were some reasons to be skeptical of Samuel Insull, I'm not sure that that kind of hostility toward business helped a lot in the middle of the Depression. We needed business to get out of the Depression. So those are some of the lessons, I think, 
uh, that are, are explained in the book and I think help us today? Well, I think considering the huge emphasis that is being placed on the development of stimulus funding around the globe at the moment, perhaps there are some very important lessons that could be taken from the way FDR did it then. I know that there was a similar uh, movement uh, globally in the, what was it, the late 2008, early 2009 period. So I guess, you know, hindsight is always a beautiful thing. And we fortunately have the benefit of other people's successes and their mistakes to, to utilize as we work to stimulate our own economy at the moment. You have the luxury of actually working in this industry. Uh, you know, you're not just a, a, an observer, you actually are, are physically involved with the nuts and bolts, so to speak. How have you seen this sector evolving and how do you see this evolution continuing, particularly at the current time? I think we should recognize that environmental concerns are, are going to drive the electricity business. And one of the things, again, talking biography and looking back, I, you know, you asked me who, who my favorite was, and it was Faraday, but there's a close second favorite biography, and that's Rachel Carson, who, who in 1962 wrote her famous book, Silent Spring, and, and she became the, the mother of the modern environmental movement. She really developed the template for environmental activism, how to, how to go about it. And she was also a very, very brave person to take on um, what she took on. The interesting thing is she never wrote about electricity. Uh, her concerns were with pesticides and insecticides, and she wrote forceful arguments against big business and big government using them. But I would still put her as one of the great forces in the electricity business, one of the big biographies. She she defined, again, this uh, template for environmental activism, and, and it plays out in the business today. So given that environment's going to drive the electricity business, I think the biggest issue for us in terms of how we will evolve is how are we going to do that? How are we going to address global climate change? And, and one of the big forks in the road is, is whether we are going to have one way is to set um, an incentive to reduce carbon emissions. Uh, and, and in that vein, it would be a carbon tax of some sort. And we would create this incentive. We would thereby enlist everyone in the battle against global climate change. And we would open the door to just anyone with any idea, anyone who wanted to put uh, their resources into that. The other road in that fork in the road is a much more prescriptive kind of government involvement. You, you mentioned uh, some of the effort today that, that might look like the, the, uh, the New Deal. Um, if, you, if you look at some of the proposals out of Vice President Biden's presidential campaign, uh, you'll see uh, government really prescribing actions in just about every situation where energy is used, whether it's pushing on electric vehicles or making homes and buildings more energy efficient, certainly pushing for solar and, and wind generation, that sort of thing. So that's 
I think, the big fork in the road. Are we going to tackle this by setting an incentive, a tax, and letting people try their ideas out? Or, or are we going to have a government that prescribes the actions? My, my preference at this point is to try the carbon tax. I think it could be made politically acceptable with by adding it to some tax, income tax reform and some rollback of some, some other subsidies. So I'd like to see that be the fork in the road. Again, looking back at history, I look at this notion of official technology where the government, rather than providing incentive, actually picks the technologies that we should go forward with. And I think, in, in, and I compare two things when I compare uh, nuclear power, uh, and I compare it to shale gas. Nuclear power was was heavily promoted as as the, the technology, and, and yet it hasn't lived up to its potential. I think it wasn't given a chance to take the time and to explore different routes. Whereas, take something like shale gas, which was privately developed by George Mitchell, um, you know, over 20 years. Uh, using eight or eight or so million of his own money, I think he developed that technology, and it has had an enormous effect on both the cost of power and the pollution from power. So, it's an interesting perspective because, you know, obviously, the development of so much of this technology, and of course, making the technology uh, more efficient. Um, is, is where there is a, an enormous cost involved. Uh, Joe Biden's um, proposal recommends what a, a spend of something like $2 trillion a year on the development of and implementation of some of this greener energy. Is there not a way that it could be almost more of a public-private partnership across the entire transformation? Uh, you're right. The, the Biden infrastructure clean energy plan is really extensive, uh, and it's at least $2 trillion over, he says, the next four years. I think that using carbon tax doesn't preclude the development of public-private partnerships. A government's going to be involved no matter what. There are permits to get, there are uh, rights of way to achieve, et cetera. So government's going to be there. It just depends who's going to make the calls on which, which investments we make. Certainly with Vice President Biden's plan, it, it's going to be the government dominating that. Uh, with the carbon tax, I think it would be more private enterprise. Although again, we would need to partner up private enterprise with the government. You know, I mentioned nuclear and, and shale and contrasting them, but if, you know, again, you, you think back to nuclear power, it is based on one of the most famous scientific equations ever, e equals mc squared. So it has the ultimate scientific pedigree. But when you look at how that developed, it, was, it got caught up primarily in the uh, first Cold War. You know, we came, we used that, that, techno that science uh, to end the Second World War, uh, and then we brought it over and we wanted to use it again. There was a famous speech by President Eisenhower called Adams for Peace, and we wanted to use this scientific knowledge for something very positive. But it soon, our next application of it was to build nuclear submarines, and you can imagine how small the power reactor was 
to achieve that. And that was a great achievement. It worked, but we were in such a hurry to show that, that America could build nuclear power plants that we took that technology at a very small scale and then expanded it to very large scale nuclear power plants. And there are those who believe that we went too fast, that had we let nuclear power emerge, it would have emerged in a different way. We would have used different technologies. And so we have today, you know, nuclear power in America still supplies about 20% of our power. Other countries like France, it's much more, but still nuclear power is, is in America at least, and maybe elsewhere is, is stalled. And I think part of that is because of this designation of official technology, this push to go fast, um, these decisions made purely by government, not, not necessarily uh, having enough private involvement. You raised a really interesting point about the concept of official technology. That is something that is very often the basis upon which most of the regulatory frameworks, to a greater or a lesser degree, are based. The, you know, there are some technologies that are proven and that they feel are, are more appropriate. How do you balance the, I guess, the tension between a proven technology that is safe and versus that desire or that need to innovate, which doesn't necessarily sit very comfortably with a regulatory environment? That's a, a really good question. And it, it goes back to something I, I just spoke about. You know, if you're a government designating a technology, providing funds to support that technology, the public is not very sympathetic to failure. If that money is not well spent, if the project doesn't work, politicians are, are in trouble. Uh, but if you contrast that with the Silicon Valley kind of experience, if, if you take a shot at something in Silicon Valley and fail, you're more valuable because you have now gone through a failure. I mean, it's such a different mentality that you, you wonder, in the private sector, people will, again, get more famous. Um, people will become more interesting if they've tried something and learned from it. If we are going to try to do breakthrough technology, and I think we really have to, then we're going to have to take the Silicon Valley attitude towards failure. We're going to have to say, look, we're going to try 10 projects. We bet maybe one will come out of it as a success. And so we want to get that kind of uh, experimentation going. Uh, we can do that uh, by creating an incentive for people to take action in, in light of uncertainty, and we can do all of that. But we can do other things, too. We have private-public partnerships in research in many fields uh, in America. One of the longest-lasting ones has been in defense. We have an, ag an agency called DARPA. And it has de developed some really interesting technologies. There's been failures, of course, but we can do it in a way where failure isn't the end, where failure helps us move forward. But again, I think to get to that kind of mentality, uh, we have to do a public-private partnership where the private entities are the ones that are making the decisions, are, are the ones used to confronting risk think that you you may well have a point there and I think it's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out we're, we're talking uh, just the other day um, you know with regards to again I guess the prescriptiveness of of governments and some of the policy issues and how 
these survive outside of an election cycle. And I guess that, again, comes back to their more benefit, perhaps, to allow the private sector to drive some of these developments, just because they are not necessarily subject to an election cycle. I think that's right. We all want things fast. But if that's not enough time to do it right, then we don't want to move fast. Uh, and so I think the, the private sector can keep up its uh, deliberate pace. Again, look at George Mitchell and shale gas. You know, it took him 20 years to develop his fracking technology and $8 million of his own money. And he, he didn't move until he got it perfected. And then he merged with Devon Energy, which had horizontal drilling technology. So he took his time. And I, I, looking back at history, there's some real value to going at a pace that the technology sort of needs or allows you to go. This, it doesn't mean, again, that we can't have interim goals. We can't uh, you know, break through on specific scientific barriers. Uh, but I, I do think we have to give things time. What do you believe the big game changes are going to be over the next five years? For me, there are probably three things that I'd keep my eye on. The, the first one, the biggest one, is whether we're going to have another battle of the currents. I, I mentioned earlier that in late 1800s, early 1900s, the two titans of the electricity business were duking it out over whose technology would be used for electricity systems in America and across the globe. And in one corner was Thomas Edison. And What's interesting about him is he was afraid of high voltage, the safety of high voltage electricity. And so his system was a direct current system, which meant in practical terms that he would have to build a power plant every mile or so to serve businesses and, and homes. Uh, and because he ended up with such small power plants, the cost would be very high. Uh, Westinghouse and Tesla didn't have that fear of high voltage. And so they proposed an alternating current system, which meant that they could reach large power sources, no matter how far away they could serve customers, however widely dispersed. And because they could spread their cost over so many kilowatt hours, the costs fell dramatically. Uh, and so it was Westinghouse and Tesla that their technology won. I think some people don't even remember that it was Edison didn't win, although we can consider him to be such a big deal in the electricity business. It was Westinghouse and Tesla, and the payoff was there. Uh, they really democratized electricity, um, made it affordable and available to all. In 1900s to 1940s or so, the price of electricity to homes dropped 80%. So that's the big battle of the currents. And I tee that up because I wonder if we're going to have another one of those um, now. Now the established provider is the AC grid, and it, it has done remarkable things, but there seems to be a change that could happen, and, and it would come from decentralized technologies, from almost personal generation. And if it happens, I think uh, it's going to happen because people today want different things from their power supplier. One of the things they want is what I call doorstep reliability. 
They want their power in their houses and their businesses, uh, in their offices to stay on no matter what's happening out there, whether there are big storms or cyber attacks. I think they want that doorstep reliability. And if we can provide them with the technology, they can get that. Something else that's new, I think, is they want to pick environmental performance. So they want to be able to choose what kinds of technologies, what kinds of environmental performance are in their generators. And, and finally, they just want choice. They, they want, if power from the grid is cheaper than their personal generator, they want to buy it. But if the opposite is true, they want to stick with their own. So there's a change in consumer attitudes. And I'm wondering if that doesn't equal a, a new battle of the currents. Again, the grid versus these personal generators, these, these microgrids. And if we have that, that would be, a, I think, a serious challenge to the grid. That would be a fundamental challenge. It's difficult to see that we would really abandon the grid. It, it's done such amazing things. But I think we have to pay attention to this alternative. That would surely have an implication far wider than just the grid. I mean, it would have an implication on how power is distributed within your home, the kinds of appliances that you would need, the, the way that they are configured. I mean, this could potentially be earth shattering. It could be. And that's why we have to look at it. I think you're absolutely right. Think about, you know, if we throw in to the equation electric vehicles and we throw in working at home a lot more as we are with this pandemic, the home becomes a pretty important place for your power plant, for your electric generation. And if, in fact, uh, some of that power is meant to flow from the home back into the grid, just think how fundamentally we would be changing the electrical system. You know, we think of electricity now coming on sort of the trunk of the tree, you know, um, back at a distant source, and then finally getting into the twigs of the tree when it comes to our homes. The reverse may be true. The, the, we may get the power flowing the other way. Now, these aren't things that are obviously happening today, but I, I really think it's something that is quite important. It, it, it is per your question, a game changer. You mentioned that there were two other things that you felt were, were potentially game changers. And I apologize if I sort of <laughs> took you off track there. You didn't, but there were two others. And the, the two others, the, I think it's really an opportunity, and I've, I've mentioned it, it's with electric vehicles. And really more broadly, um, I think that the real push for electric vehicles will come if we have a big push for autonomous vehicles, for driverless vehicles. I think that's the real context for electric vehicles. But I think that a positive thing for the power business would be to, to elect, you know, electrification of transport that would give them a whole new customer. And so it would have increased uh, sales. It would have implications for the design of the system, whether that, that's the distribution of power or charging stations. But I think that's a second big game changer. The third one is just a big question about where load growth is going. Over the past several years, you look at a lot of utility forecasts of electricity demand and electric energy consumption. It's not difficult to get a forecast that shows a flat uh, curve, you know, flat line going out into the future and maybe even a decline. And I think part of the, the explanation of that is that the Congress here in the States has done a lot to demand 
efficiency gains in everything from refrigerators to dishwashers. And some of that flattening, some of that decline has to do with mandated conservation. But I think as we look forward, we're going to have to look for specific examples that would break us off of that flat or declining curve. Certainly electric vehicles, we already talked about that. But I think, you know, we used to do a lot of work in uh, gas and oil producing states. And it was hard to predict electricity uh, use at those oil and gas production facilities. And when shale oil hit, uh, a lot of forecasts were underestimating demand because they didn't anticipate this sudden increase in oil and gas production. And there's another sort of odd one that's similar to that. And it deals with Bitcoins, which is this new kind of currency. It seems that the creation of, of Bitcoins in an intellectual sense and in a financial sense uh, requires a huge amount of electricity. And so that uh, Bitcoin begins to be something like a data center, which is, uses a lot of electricity for cooling as well as to run the computers that are in that. So those kinds of anecdotal blips, changes, uh, I think that's another thing. But the general point is we have to watch where uh, load growth is going, what conservation is done, and whether some of these new uses like Bitcoin uh, might surprise us. My last question for you is what book are you currently reading and why would you recommend it to people in the power and utility sector? I'm reading a lot of books right now. If you know, I was to pick one right now that I, I just started, it's The Circle, and it's a fictional tale that has a lot of truth to it, I believe. It's about a, a, a big tech company uh, and how people, young people just joining that company cope with what it means to be part of that culture. You know, I think we're going to have to understand a lot about big tech. I think public utilities are, and, and all of us in the electricity business, are going to have to think a lot about applications. And the questions range from everything from, and again, I think we touched on this, what are the electricity demands uh, of ever-increasing amount of tech? Uh, again, the data centers are the most tangible way, but they affect the demand. But I think there are other ways too. Uh, but other questions too, uh, one of the big concerns about big tech is privacy. What, what about the electricity business reaching into homes to attempt to get more efficient use of power? So uh, they would know when to set off HVAC or washing machines or that sort of thing. If you reach into a home and have access to that kind of data, how do you protect against the misuse of that data? You know, it's not too hard to convince anyone that big tech uh, and privacy are huge issues for the world right now. I think they are also issues for the electricity business in, in a diverse set of ways. I haven't read The Circle, but I, I watched the movie. If I remember correctly, it had Tom Hanks in it. And um, that's right. it was incredibly disturbing and yet oddly familiar. Perhaps that was what made it so disturbing <laughs> was the fact that it had so many parallels to life as we were living it at the moment. I like your words. It's disturbing and it's for real. Yeah. Uh, and I think the decisions being made are 
big decisions, especially if the whole technology moves on to artificial intelligence, where we're making decisions with artificial intelligence and how far we want that to go. Uh, of course, there's, there's famous movies about losing control to a computer, but these are big issues for the power business, and it's all happening very fast. Thank you for joining us for this first episode of the Smart Energy International series on authors that professionals in this sector should be reading. Today, we spoke with Dr. Craig Roach, author of the book, Simply Electrifying. In future episodes, we'll be taking the opportunity to explore the books and authors that are influencing the leaders in the power and utility sector globally. Be sure to join us for future episodes and visit our website, smart-energy.com for other podcast episodes about the things that matter in this industry. Until next time, I'm Claire Falkvane and you've been listening to the Smart Energy International podcast.